Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. Uh, Zooming so you can watch the program as well as listen by going to prn.live, scrolling down to archives, scrolling down to Gary Nall in show notes. And there I have all types of articles and videos that I'm not able to play during the show itself. So you get a lot of backup information. Our first study today comes from a university in China. And what they found was unique. A form of magnesium helps to reduce the deposits of amyloid beta, that kind of white streak in the brain that leads to Alzheimer's. And so anything we can do to prevent that would be positive. Now please write this down because this is the best form of magnesium for your brain. It's called magnesium threonate, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E. And it is believed to penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And on normal mice and mice that overexpress a gene that increased amyloid beta production while decreasing the influx of magnesium into the brain, among those that received magnesium, the researchers observed a reduction in amyloid beta aggregation and associated cognitive decline, accompanied by an elevation in brain levels of ionic magnesium. So that's the scientific explanation. So get yourself inexpensive, easy to find, magnesium threonate, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E. And that can help a lot of people. That's just one item, by the way. And it was published in a peer-reviewed journal, the FASEB journal. It's a major scientific journal. From the University of California at Riverside comes a study about mindfulness meditation found to relieve the stress of waiting for bad news. Now, all of us know uh, at many times in life, not just a few, thousands, that we're going to get some bad news. Maybe we didn't uh, study as hard as we could have in school and our report card's coming and we're concerned our parents are going to be angry if we didn't get the A and maybe a B, but certainly not a C. Or just think of whether or not uh, your job's going to be there. Uh, Think whether or not you're going to have enough money to pay for your bills. might be out in the street. These are not unrealistic fears. They happen all the time. But something goes on in our body when that happens, and that creates stress hormones, cortisol primarily, and cortisol's really pro-inflammatory, oxidative stress, damages your cells, speeds up the aging process. Have you ever noticed someone who's under a lot of stress? They look older than what they should. We see people, even the President of the United States, how they age in four years or eight years in particular. That's stress. Well, popular music and cliches aren't the only evidence that the waiting is the hardest part of knowing what's the outcome. And research backs it up as well. Waiting for potentially bad news can be at least as difficult as receiving the news itself. Just imagine if you were audited by the IRS and you don't know whether they're going to find you civilly or criminally or whether you're going to have to pay a lot of money. It's that waiting that is the problem. But new research, and this is the good news, new research finds something that can help, supplementing these ineffective strategies with mindfulness meditation that is focusing upon the present, 
using meditation. And this was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. The results show that mindfulness is a sort of antidote to the curse of waiting. That curse is a focus on the past or future. It takes us away from the moment. And what can we control in life? The only thing we can control is our perception and how we feel about that perception in the moment we're in. I mean, just, I'm down here in Florida on an animal sanctuary. Today it's raining and waking up early and you hear the rain. In the one hand, that's kind of comforting. It's soothing. But the other is I got to go out in it. I have to go out and I have to clean up the animal enclosures. I have to take hay to the animals, the hoof stock, and, and clean their, and all this I'm going to get very wet. So the anticipation creates a little bit of stress, but then you ground yourself and say, it's okay. I'll just put on some rain gear and boots and I'll be fine. So being able to keep yourself in the moment is crucial to being able to control the emotions of the moment. All the time in the field that I'm in, the issues I take on, the investigative reporting, the commentaries, you're always going to alienate someone. Someone's going to not like what you have to say, especially if it's true and they feel that it represents them. But you can't worry about what other people think of what you believe is important to you. Stay in the moment. Stay grounded. Breathe deeply, relax, and say, I'm all right. I'll get through this, no matter what it is. You know, as long as you're looking for universal truths, then you should have a sense of universal ease, meaning it's a wonderful world we live in. There are bad people in it doing bad things, but the average person is not a bad person. The average person is like you, like me. We like friendships. We like companionships. We like to work together. We like to cooperate. At the intimate level, we like to harmonize our energies. And yes, that means that we're going to have to find a way of doing that in spite of all the other things that are going wrong around us. What you don't want to do, and yet we do it all the time, we become immersed in other people's negative energy, other people's false perceptions, other people's being motivated by fear of what they can't control, and therefore relinquishing the power to make reasonable, common sense, even spiritual and enlightened decisions. Look at COVID. Look how everyone got in line. Almost everyone. About 30% of the American population didn't. They were right. Unfortunately, others put themselves at risk, and now we're seeing how bad that was. But be that as it may, you can learn a lesson from that. Last evening, I spoke with my, my brother, and I love my brother, and, uh, but he's, you know, he's got that West Virginia attitude, and I'll go into that in sometime in the future because I'm sure you all have been at a place in life where you look back and you ask your friends that you grew up with, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you addressing that? And they look at you like, what are you talking about? Because their world is very small and they see things from a very personalized point of view. Therefore, they engage in personal truths, personal reality. But what if it's not connected to universal truths and universal reality? And that's where a lot of people are today. They're just 
living with an angst, a fear of the future. They frequently get to an age where they begin to regret some of the bad choices of the past, but you can't change the past. You can only change your perception and learn a lesson from it. Remember, something positive in the way of learning can come from bad experiences. But if we don't accept that, then it just becomes a bad experience, which is a bad memory, which is a bad feeling, and cortisol goes off the charts. So stay present and say, today I wouldn't make the same decision I made 10 years ago, 2 years ago, 20 years ago, but I was still growing. I was still learning. I was still on this curve of life that I didn't know everything. None of us do. And so rather than being completely torn apart emotionally with guilt and and regret, why don't we say, wow, was that an expensive learning experience? Now I won't do that again because I'm older and wiser. Not as wise as I will be next year if I keep growing. Stay in the moment. That's what mindful meditation is. Stay in the moment and you have control over the moment. Allow your past to control your emotions. I was a victim. I'm a victim. Not now you're not. Then you might have been. Not now. So stop acting like you're a victim today. And we have a whole generation that is of the belief that they're victims. Wow. So that's just what this study is showing us. And that way we can control our life at the emotional level. And that impacts us at the physical level. Because when you're calm, then your serotonin and your dopamine is able to express itself in rewards. Rewards for laughing, rewards for hugging, rewards for joy, rewards for creating, finding solutions. Don't we all feel a little better when we've solved a problem? Of course we do. When we've got by some crisis and we're so okay? You bet. And that's why I, I suggest, and that's all I can do is suggest, and not to virtue a shame, but whenever you can help another person who is in greater need than you, you, try to do so. And watch the smile come on that person's face. First of all, perplexity. Why are you helping me? I'm a stranger. And then kind of a relaxing thinking, thank you. And I hear a lot of thank yous out there from people who didn't believe that they were important enough for someone to stop and say, hi, friend, how can I help you? Try it. I do it all the time. I have my whole life. Because you never know when you're that person who would appreciate someone saying, Hi, I just called to see, are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help you? Going into the new year, just try that. All right? And finally, from Michigan State University comes a study about how high-fat diets, and that's the average American diet, in puberty when you're young, is linked to increase in breast cancer. That's correct. This is important. This is from Michigan State University. Young women approaching puberty could reduce their risk of breast cancer if they avoid the high-fat junk diets that we as a country are just so enamored with and so indulgent of. This was published in Peer Review Journal Breast Cancer Research. So these are simply positive suggestions that you can apply if you find them reasonable. Look, anything I say that you do not find reasonable, don't use. But I'm going to come back tomorrow and give you more.
and the day after and every day thereafter. I remember once uh, back in 1973 at WMCA Radio, the, uh, the show I was doing had to have a different topic every seven minutes. It was foolish. And I remember having Linus Pauling on, and we were getting into the role of vitamin C and how it helped with cancer, both preventing it and with an adjunct treatment. And I went a little over. I went a minute over. I went eight minutes. And afterwards, I got reamed out, you know, how, you know, we have policy here. And, and I said, I understand. Remember, everything is seven minutes. And then after I leave the studio, not aware that the studio glass is not soundproof, I hear her railing the station manager or the owner. You know, well, he'll be out of stuff to talk about in another three months. Well, that was a half a century ago, 50 years ago, and I'm still finding brand new state-of-the-art information every single day. And I'll be able to do this for the next 50 years. That's how much information there is to know. We're going to take a break and take on some really important issues in just a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. We're going to go to two clips now. They're both with Josh Hawley. He is one of the handful of Republicans or Democrats in the House or in the Senate who are not afraid to speak truth to power. Now, what's interesting is to watch one of the people like the head of the FBI or the head of the Justice Department or the head of Homeland Security talking on television and or giving an interview to the New York Times. It all seems so positive. Everything seems to be working fine. No one's taking responsibility for anything. It's failing. Very optimistic. Now watch him when he's being grilled by Holly, whose staff has done meticulous research to show how corrupt the agency is, how wrong these people have been, how biased they are. And that's different. This time it's under oath. They can be held accountable legally for perjury. So therefore they say nothing. They never have an answer. Well, I can't answer that. Well, that it would interfere with another investigation. These people are pathetic. But thank goodness, we go to get the clips. The average person will never see these clips. I'll give you one example. One of these clips is where there was a major scandal within the military. I believe it was in the Coast Guard. And another one was the Air Force. And all these whistleblowers came forward. And they testified under oath and gave depositions uh, to Holly and his committee. Nothing was done. The government covered it up for years. And they're notorious for doing that. Remember Abu Ghraib, uh, the scandal in Iraq where thousands of prisoners were tortured and abused and killed? Photographs got out. Who was held accountable? How about nobody important up the chain, yet they all knew it? That's how it works. Corrupt from top to bottom. Well, Let's go to into the into the hearing now and hear how he deals with two separate issues and how he doesn't uh, he doesn't tolerate nonsense. Senator Essen, Senator Hawley, you're recognized for your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of the witnesses for being here. Uh, Director Breer, if I could just start with you. How familiar are you with the case Missouri versus Biden? Not not really familiar. Well, I, I, I I've got it in the outline, but I'm sorry, go ahead. 
I, I, I'm aware of it, but I don't, I don't know in depth. You say you're aware of it. What, what are you aware of? Um, I'm aware of the, the context around um, misinformation, disinformation online. So it, Missouri versus Biden is the United States District Court and then the United States Court of Appeals that ruled in both cases that the United States government violated the First Amendment by coercing and censoring speech and using the biggest corporations in the world to do it. And I'm asking you about it because a large portion of the case concerns CISA. So let me just read some of the relevant portions since you say you're not too familiar with it. This is from the court's opinion. CISA, working in close connection with the FBI, held regular industry meetings with the platforms, that's the social media platforms, concerning their moderation policies, pushing them to adopt CISA's proposed practices for addressing misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. CISA also engaged in switchboarding operations, meaning that CISA officials acted as intermediaries for third parties by forwarding flag content from them to the platforms. Like the CDC did for COVID-related claims, CISA told the platforms whether certain election-related claims were true or false. The court goes on. CISA violated the First Amendment. CISA was the primary facilitator of the FBI's interaction with the social media platforms and worked in close coordination with the FBI to push the platforms to change their policies. CISA also used its frequent interactions with social media platforms to push them to adopt more restrictive policies, and CISA affirmatively told them repeatedly what content was true or false and what needed to be taken down. So what the court found is, and there are voluminous findings here, both in the opinion and in the record, is that the government acting through a series of agencies, including the one that you are a part of, used its power to go after protected First Amendment speech in a way that directly violates the First Amendment. Now, you have a long record of, of, of government service. I can't imagine that this is what you signed up to do. Let, let me just ask you first. You weren't in any way involved in any of the activities described by the court in these cases, were you? Um, I was... Uh, I will... I work physical security for the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. So I come in each and every day, and I'm focused on public gathering events, federal facilities, security, and the sectors to ensure that they have physical security measures in place. Okay, that good. So my you focus, that is my expertise. You, you, did, you weren't meeting with, with executives or, or counterparts at any of these social media companies, as, no. as described by the court. Good. Now, let, let me just ask you, I mean, do you think that this is consistent with CISA's mission, the use of coercive power to try and censor American speech in a way that violates the First Amendment of the United States Constitution? That's not the way the agency that I work for operates. Well, are you saying it's not how it should operate? Because two courts have found it is, it, it, it is how it's operating. I mean, that's the problem. Would you agree with me that that's a problem when federal courts find that the First Amendment has been violated by a federal agency using federal power to censor American speech? I mean, would you agree that's a problem? I don't have the expertise or knowledge to comment on that. But would you agree it's a problem when the First Amendment's violated? How about that? Yes. And would you agree it's a problem when the federal government violates the First Amendment? Yes. Okay. And when you say that it's not what the agency is doing, I mean, you would say that this is not, this sort of activity, the violation of the First Amendment, is not what CISA ought to be doing. Is that fair to say? I'm saying I don't have knowledge of that. Well, 
here's, I guess, my point to you, Director Brior. I appreciate the work that you do and your long service uh, record of service to this country. I just think it's important that we send this body, send the message to every agency that was involved in this. It is a serious thing to violate the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. It is a very serious thing. There is nothing more foundational to our democracy than the freedom of speech. And what these courts found is the federal government systematically, not accidentally, not oops, we went too far, systematically over a period of months and years set out to violate the First Amendment speech of ordinary Americans, including those in my home state of Missouri. And this is all on the record. In fact, my state brought the suit. So that's a pretty big deal. And I'm pretty upset about it. You're not the first person I've asked about it, and I promise you, you won't be the last. But I just want to send the message, and maybe you can take this message back to your agency, that this is not acceptable behavior, not by a long shot. If the federal government can tell people and can use the most powerful corporations in the world, in the world, to shut down speech it doesn't like on a variety of topics, elections, COVID, school boards, the Hunter Biden laptop story. I mean, pick it. There is so much censorship that this, these courts have found. We've got a serious problem that goes right to the heart of our democracy, and that's a serious issue for me. Thanks, Senator Johnson. Uh, Senator Butler? Senator Hawley? I just want to follow up on something you said, Mr. Chairman. You said a second ago that this is about our national security, which I completely agree with. But you know what? It's also about the integrity of our government. And it's one thing to have corporate leaders come in here and sit where you're sitting and lie to us, and frankly, they do it all the time. We have people come into this hearing room and lie to us constantly, mislead us, withhold information, lie to us. But when, the, when our own government does it, it is absolutely – to say that it is unacceptable doesn't begin – we, we ought to have the, the salty language you were talking about earlier, Commander. I mean, it, it, we couldn't keep this hearing PG and say what needs to be said. The, the fact that these people, this leadership, commissioned this report in 2014, which was itself too late, and sat on it for years, and not just sat on it, but actively worked to conceal it, is unbelievable. And I just want to say, I'm glad we've got press here, I just want to say for the leadership of the Coast Guard, it is not acceptable. I, I don't want to hear, I don't want to see any more memos from you where we say, oh, we've got to work on our culture. No, 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 we're past that point now. You have lied to us. They lied to you. They've lied to the American people. They need to sit where you're sitting, take the oath, and explain to the country what's going on. That's what needs to happen. So I don't want to hear any more of it. I don't want to hear any more of the softly worded memos. I don't want to hear any more of the, you know, well, we'll do better next time. We're past all of that. We're past that. They have broken our trust. And frankly, when you see the trust constantly broken in institution after institution of this government, it's no wonder that people across this country just are, are, are in despair, regardless of their politics. It's unbelievable. Ms. Morrow, you want to make a comment? I'll yield my time to you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Senator. Um, to piggyback off of what you just said, Senator Hawley, and uh, what Senator Johnson's final remarks were, I think it's, I think we should all take a moment to reflect on the idea that Linda Fagan, our, the Commandant of, of the Coast Guard, the first woman Commandant of the Coast Guard, we should be here like cheering that, right? It's exciting. Um, she has a chance to make this right, but I also think it's most important for us to sit 
and think about that her predecessor left her with this report, Operation Found Anchor, in her inbox. This, this, she was left to hold this bag from her predecessor, Carl Schultz. He is in retirement right now, sipping Mai Tais on a beach somewhere, I don't know, whatever you know, retired admirals do in their free time on retirement, I'm not sure. But I think that both Admiral Schultz and Admiral Fagan should come in here and explain to you all, first of all, Admiral Fagan's inconsistencies to her testimony to the Commerce Committee where she said that everyone was contacted and that everyone on which she had jurisdiction over was punished, my assailant's a lieutenant commander. Wasn't punished, I wasn't fouled anchor, I wasn't contacted. I think she should come in here and explain herself. And I also think that Admiral Schultz should come in here and explain himself and why he left Operation Feldanker on her inbox. That's all I have to say. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break and come back. I've got a lot more interesting things to share with you. Please stay with us. I'd like to say hello to all the people in Australia listening to this program. From what I understand, there's a large group of people down there that listen and they use the articles and trying to change some of the policies of the government, especially censorship. I mean, you're dealing with a really fascistic regime down there, and that's unfortunate. The Australian people deserve better, as do the New Zealand people. Uh, we try to select themes and topics that have universal appeal, deal with universal truths. Well, one of them right now is, if all the people who are so concerned about Israel want real peace, and they should, and I do. I want to see, I want to be able to see a Middle East where no one has to go to bed at night, whether they're Jewish, Christian, um, uh, whether they are part of the Muslim belief, and fear being arrested, fear their children being killed, or any harm coming. There's no reason they can't live in harmony. They have, historically. I can give you the whole history of how long they lived together, 400 years. But you wouldn't know any of that based upon those who propagandize. A country without a people, not true. That's a lie. Tell a lie enough and people believe it, including intelligent people, people who have advanced degrees, MD, PhDs. I know them. Some are my friends. And I say, is the object of the exercise for us to find peace? Yes. Peace for both Palestinians and, and Jewish. Or do you want to make this purely ideological where there is a closed mind, a rigid sense of, of uh, let's say, acknowledgement, where you're not acknowledging that one group has more power than the other group. And then that's where you start to see how ramrock solid their defense mechanisms are, almost like a cult member. So we're going to ask you this. This is just a general question. What would happen if in the United States 20,000 known dead, it's actually around 23,000 now, 23,000 over half of those, around 12,000 are children, completely innocent, those 23,000. But then the accurate figure is how many died in the rubble? No one knows. I would speculate that based upon how much damage has been done, a whole scorched earth approach that probably twice that amount, around 
60,000 are dead of citizens. Now, I'm not talking the Hamas fighters or commanders. I'm just talking about citizens. And what happens when you take 2.3 million people and you keep putting them into narrow spaces and then you bomb those spaces? You say one thing and you do just the opposite. At what point do we, are we allowed to know the truth? Or we can, can we handle that truth? We would be outraged if 20 people were killed. Look at the extent that we go to to honor the martyrdom of uh, almost uh, 3,000 uh, who died at 9-11. And we're talking about just tens of thousands of dead right now. And that has nothing to do with dealing with Hamas. That has to do with ethnic cleansing. Have we learned no lesson from Rwanda? Have we learned no lessons from history? Evidently not. But just to, to make this a little more emphatic, let's go to a clip. I think you'll find this of interest. Uh, we're going to play a clip about Israel is using infectious diseases and starvation to make Gaza unlivable. I watch a lot of videos, over 100 per week. I select the ones that I feel have something important to tell us. When you see children who have no food, no clean water, when they drink something, they're now getting diarrhea and can die. And you ask, why does that child have to die? How many children? At least Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, you know, uh, President of the United States, tell us how many would be an acceptable number before you finally decide to be honest about anything concerning this conflict. Is it 10,000 children, 100,000 children, half a million children? Give us the number that it's okay to see them die without being concerned about them, because I haven't heard a single thing that any of these individuals have shown in the way of compassion or empathy or honesty about those who were killed who didn't have to die, who shouldn't have died. They had no conflict with anyone. They're just growing up as children in a very deprived and controlled environment. But evidently, no number is enough death for these neocon warmongering hate mongers. Let's go to the clip. But what is more concerning to me are Israeli doctors who also stated that, yes, whatever the IDF is doing is legitimate. They should be continuing their bombing campaign, regardless if they're targeting hospitals or not, because there's tunnels, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, when I compare my, you know, my views on, uh, on patients and, and human beings as a, as a physician, and I, I, I cannot put myself in the shoes of, of, an, of one of these Israeli physicians who signed the, the, the statement. I mean, we, we both had or made the same Hippocratic oath of first do no harm and respect all life. I cannot see how they reconcile the profession that I practice with, with, with their views of, uh, of Palestinians. Hello everyone, I'm Rania Kalik and this is Dispatches. Israel isn't only murdering Palestinians with airstrikes, shells and bullets, but also with disease. By targeting hospitals and doctors and sanitation and generators and cutting off water, food and electricity and concentrating Palestinians into smaller and smaller zones of death that they're trying to sell to us as evacuation zones, the Israelis are creating a public health crisis that will kill even more Palestinians with preventable diseases. This comes on top of nearly 20 years of de-developing Gaza through a siege and putting Gazans on a so-called diet that already had Gaza's healthcare system on the precipice of collapse. 
The idea is to make Gaza unsustainable for human life, to force the population out, to ethnically cleanse them. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Lebanese medical doctor and public health researcher, Anis Jermani. Anis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Vanya. Well, thank you for joining me. You're speaking to me from Lebanon, which is de- dealing with its own sort of low-level warfare. But we're going to, of course, be talking about uh, all of the horrors taking place in Gaza in terms of, you know, what people are dying from. Like I mentioned in the intro, you know, most people are hearing of the airstrikes, which, of course, are horrific. And, and that's what's, I think, killing a lot of people in Gaza. But there's this other aspect of the war where Israel is really weaponizing the destruction of public health to maximize the damage in Gaza. So there's so much to get through here, but in order to kind of lay the foundation for understanding this, let's start with Israel's policy of de-development in Gaza. Um, Obviously there's been a very, very long siege on Gaza uh, before this, this, ongoing genocide that started in October, um, where, you know, the the entire intention of the Israelis was to make Gaza unlivable over time. One statistic that you've mentioned to me before, which I'd love for you to get into, I, I was not aware of, is that only 3% of people in Gaza reach the age of 65. I mean, that's a shocking number, because I, I think a lot of people recognize that Gaza is a young population. Half the people in Gaza are, are children. And one reason for that is because it's been made into this place where you can't grow old. Um, so let's start there. Can you talk about just the de-development of Gaza before we got to the current crisis that we're witnessing? Mm-hmm. So uh, first of all, I'm going to take a small step back and to um, explain the difference between medicine and public health in the sense that medicine treats an individual and the disease that is wrong w- within that person but public health takes care of a population and they examine everything from the causes that lead them to develop diseases to not catching them early on to their to their deaths and by not treating them properly so from that perspective public health examines uh, multiple factors that have to do with the environment and man-made uh, factors that influence people's health so in, in that sense uh, public health can can be a tool to either preserve or uh, for, for a population to flourish or also to kill. And this is something that Israel has weaponized very early on during this conflict. Um, and this is not uh, an, an escalation of violence. It is a policy that started from the very beginning. So, um, and this it also does not date, date back to the 7th of October, but long before that. And the, the siege is the primary tool by which they enforce um, th- these, these measures to turn Gaza into an unlivable space. So um, the first one would be definitely uh, something that is also today very well known. It's the rationing of calories that ha- that uh, the Gaza population has access to. Um, they, there has been some calculations by the Israeli Authority and estimates to see how much food is just enough for the population in Gaza to uh, to survive. Other uh, uh, other things have also been made clear uh, when the the siege was reinforced uh, on October eighth which is the, when, they, when they cut off water, when they cut off electricity. Uh, already prior to the, um, uh, to the October 7th events, um, uh, only 40% of uh, Gaza's energy uh, requirements were met. Uh, also prior to, uh, to the war, um, the, the water access of Palestinians was already below what is recommended by the, by the WHO. All of these factors uh, impact the uh, the health of the population and make sure that they do develop diseases eventually. 
Moreover, um, there, are, there are also multiple restrictions on the entry of uh, spare parts that are required for, let's say, CT scans, X-ray machines, MRIs, uh, also for uh, other types of medical equipment and essential medication. So already prior to these events, there was 40% of essential medication that was lacking. And we're talking just about essential medication. So this is antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, um, you know, anticoagulants, anything we can think of that is necessary in modern medicine. Half of these were not available. 70% of the permits for um, spare parts for, the, for machines were also denied, all, all of them under the pretext of, you know, um, these tools can be weaponized into, uh, into missiles or, or, or anything. We've already heard these so many times. This is not the first time. The same argument was put forward uh, during the siege on Iraq when they banned uh, the entry of dialysis machines. Also, they said that these can be used uh, to manufacture weapons of mass destruction that never materialized. So none of it is new. And, and more importantly, uh, public health has been a weapon in the hands of the Australian authorities prior to October 7th, and now it is it has become much worse. I mean, it's really crazy. You also talk, you mentioned like uh, when we were talking about this prior that there, the Israeli authorities have made the healthcare system in Gaza, uh, like have had it kind of like, it's been on the precipice, I would say, of collapse even before this. They've experienced mm -hmm. these periodic, you know, mowing the lawns, if you will, meaning uh, wars on Gaza. Uh, even before what we're seeing now, that the Israeli authorities had organized this like permit system where Palestinians in Gaza had to actually go get treatment in the West Bank. Um, on top of the sort of like stuff you talked about where you, you know, make it impossible to get spare parts, you have an embargo on medications, the sort of idea of, it, you know, prohibiting dual use items makes this infrastructure decay. But I mean, that level of, of control is so insane that I feel like it needs a little bit of elaboration the fact that you have this authority that if you get sick things that you can just go get treated in most places in the world by going to like your local healthcare provider in gaza they actually have to get permission from the israelis to leave their concentration camp which is now a death camp and go seek treatment in other areas and a lot of times they get denied mm -hmm. yeah so, so you, um, access like, to population go ahead yeah, so access to healthcare is one of the major factors that determine the health of the population. The fact that you can just walk into a place and get the necessary diagnose, diagnostic and uh, treatment tests that, that you require. So, um, so definitely when we examine the demographics of, of Gaza, we see there is a huge aberration, a demographic aberration that is insanely documented by the Israeli authorities themselves, so they know, and they also publish all of this information, which, uh, you know, th these are numbers that you cannot see anywhere else across the world. So the, as you mentioned earlier on, only 3% of the uh, Gaza population reaches the age of 65, which is a very low number. These are, like, if we look back on, on a time period where these were normal demographics, we would be back in like 100 years ago. So this is 20th century medicine being practiced uh, in Gaza. This is not what, what all the, you know, all the technology, all the, the, the development that happened in the 20th and 21st century 
are not there. We do not see their impact on the on the Gaza population because their demographics show they still live 100 years ago. And this is due to multiple factors. So the idea that um, you know half of the population is children, when they tell you, yeah, it's because they have so many children, that's not even true. Because on average, the fertility rate is about three kids per, per, per woman in, in Gaza, whereas the Middle Eastern average is 2.6. So it's not really that high. It's not a big discrepancy. There is definitely things that are killing Palestinians that is not allowing them to grow old and reach the age of 65, which is, again, not that old. Today, people re have a life expectancy of 80. And, and this is something that you, that you can see within the, the entire Palestinian uh, territory. So you have 3% uh, of people in Gaza reach the age of 65. Uh, on average, the Palestinians between the West Bank and Gaza combined have a life expectancy of 70. And literally right across the street, Israelis have a life expectancy of 80 years. This is health apartheid that is being practiced on the uh, on the Palestinian population. So one, here we go back to, to the idea of access, accessing healthcare. So also one of the insane facts that are also documented by the Israeli uh, authorities and have been um, analyzed by the WHO uh, from 2008 to 2022, there's approximately 250,000 permits that uh, were submitted to the Israeli authorities from inside Gaza to get treatment in the West Bank. So around 30% of these permits would either, were either delayed or denied. And when they were accepted, and we're, we're specifically talking about children here, children who had permits to, get, to go get treatment, 40% of these children had to go without their parents because their parents were not allowed to leave Gaza. So, mm -hmm. and, and Away from the, like, I mean, if we step, take a step back from these statistics, and we imagine our family, our kids, our neighbors, you know, when we, we put it into a human context, this is extremely horrific. Imagine yourself waiting, you know, to get a permit so that your father or your sick mother would have to go get treatment somewhere else, somewhere you can't even go with her. To, to help her. And this has happened among cancer patients in Gaza. And this has decreased the fact that, the, that these permits were delayed, decreased the, the, the rate of success of cancer treatments by 150%. A thousand people died strictly because of the delays or the deny, denial of, of these permits. Yeah, it's completely disgusting and unacceptable that, that that's what it's like before. But now I want to move to what we're seeing take place now, because this is a mm -hmm um sort of new stage in this right like you have you mentioned the siege that was sort of reinforced after october 7th here we're talking about the cutting literally cutting off access to electricity water and food Bef before gazans were on a diet now israel's trying to create the conditions for famine and there are actually people dying of starvation now dying of lack of access to water getting waterborne diseases and we're going to get into the issue of diseases but first i want to talk about a few things here the fact that we have the targeting of healthcare infrastructure and healthcare professionals. What's the impact of that going to be on Gaza? Uh, because at some point this will end, right? Um, and this presents so many future challenges in terms of even being able to have the infrastructure to deal with the most basic stuff. I mean, you talk about living a hundred years ago, what we're seeing now with the destruction of hospitals, and literally, they are hunting medical professionals. They're hunting doctors. They're kidnapping the heads of departments and forcing them to confess that they belong to Hamas, which is so absurd. And on top of that, you know, if they're not kidnapping them, they're actually killing them and their families, which is something that they've been doing. They even did this back in 2021, where they targeted the homes of like the most specialized doctors 
Uh, and, you know, can you talk about what that means for Gaza to lose, for example, uh, like a, a neurosurgeon? Um, what that means for a place like Gaza to lose somebody who like specializes in oncology, um, an emergency, you know, an, an ER doctor, like these, these are highly skilled mm -hmm. professions. What happens when you lose those people and the infrastructure that they work in? Yeah. So to strictly um, focus on the healthcare professionals would be to limit the scope of damage that has happened uh, in Gaza in the last couple of months. So in order to, 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 to grasp the whole framework of what's happening, uh, very early on during the conflict, Israel started targeting all of these uh, um, water facilities and uh, fuel uh, storages and, and, and power plants. These are, you know, um, the life's blood of, of the population. You cannot have a population that is healthy without access to clean water. Afterwards, they started targeting hospitals, and this started with the um, with the Ahli, the bombing of the of the Ahli Hospital as a first test. And when they realized that the international community wasn't going to do anything about it, they you know they went on a rampage, and they they targeted hospitals and centers and and ambulances and medical professionals indiscriminately, and even targeted them specifically, knowing that they are healthcare professionals. So. On average, you need between 10 to 15 years to train a medical professional. So, and, and this is somebody who has newly graduated. We're not talking about people with like a high level of, of experience of like 20, 30, or even 40 years. Then these people would have to train the younger generation. And we've seen that they've not only targeted these individuals, they've also targeted the university in which these medical professionals are being trained. And then this would create another problem that is if let's say if somehow I do manage to find these uh, professionals that would certainly have to come from abroad and if they do get the permits to come to Gaza and they are willing to stay in, in the wasteland that Gaza will be, will be left in for, like, for the next 10 to 20 years to be able to, ch to train the, the doctors of the, of the future, then you would be hit with a very specific, also very simple problem that is, where is the classroom? Where can I teach these, uh, th this new, new generation? And then you'll find out that uh, the Israeli authorities also ration the amount of cement that is allowed to enter Gaza. So, it, you know, at, at the, the hands of, um, of anybody trying to help Gaza will be tied one way or another. And, and this is clear from the beginning because when the genocidal intentions of the Israeli authorities were made clear, it was not the moment they started bombing hospitals, but it was long before when they were indiscrimin indiscriminately bombing civilians, but also when they were targeting every aspect of um, in, in terms of infrastructure and and an organized human society that makes life possible uh, in the in the Gaza, territory of Gaza. When you talk about cement, can you just explain real quick, like why that's so important? And now we go to our next clip, our final clip of the day. And this again is a different approach by a member of parliament about her own personal family and the truth that was not told, in fact, all lies were told concerning the attack upon the one safe place they could go, and that was the, uh, the church's compound. Let's go to the clip, please. A Catholic church in Gaza sheltering hundreds of Palestinian civilians has come under siege from the IDF. Amongst those inside are family members of British Lib Dem MP Leila Moran. This is how she described the situation to the BBC over the weekend. Well, it's been deteriorating all week. I haven't had an update overnight, and we are now at the point where 
there is that blackout and the generators have gone. So I'm not sure we're going to get anything, which is terrifying, of course. Um, so it's been getting from bad to worse for a while. We lost a, a family member who desperately needed a hospital just a few weeks ago and, and wasn't able to, to get out. But the escalation really began on Tuesday. Um, there was shooting. They reported seeing white phosphorus. Um, they were obviously terrified. They all went back into sort of the Sunday school rooms in the complex in the Latin church where they are. And uh, they uh, then heard that the janitor had been shot, the bin collector had been shot, and this was from forces who were outside at that stage. Um, then about 48 hours ago, it escalated yet again. There are three generators, two of them had already stopped working. So already there was dwindling electricity uh, to charge their phones to communicate what was happening to them. Um, but the third uh, caught fire. Um, we understand that that was because soldiers had, had hit it. Uh, they managed to put the fire out, um, but that was the generator that pumped any water. Already they were drinking contaminated water. They were down to sort of a meal a day. But this was sort of the last straw. So, so the, the last and we how, heard is that now they are without water, without food, and there is a sniper inside the compound. Um, there's a woman and a her daughter who have been killed. And what's been happening is as they try and leave their rooms, say to go to the toilet or something, um, there is firing at them. Moran made reference there to a mother and daughter killed by Israeli snipers. That killing has also been confirmed by the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem. They released this statement. Around noon today, December 16th, 2023, a sniper of the IDF murdered two Christian women inside the Holy Family Parish in Gaza, where the majority of Christian families have taken refuge since the start of the war. Nahida and her daughter Samar were shot and killed as they walked to the sisters' convent. One was killed as she tried to carry the other to safety. Seven more people were shot and wounded as they tried to protect others inside the church compound. No warning was given, no notification was provided. They were shot in cold blood inside the premises of the parish where there are no belligerents being murdered in church. The Patriarchate also said there were three projectiles fired by an Israeli tank and that, that had hit a convent of the Sisters of Mother Teresa charity. Its generator and fuel supplies were destroyed with a building housing 54 disabled people left uninhabitable. Pope Francis has also condemned the attack, giving this address from the Vatican yesterday. Unarmed civilians are being bombed and shot at, and this has even happened inside the Holy Family Parish complex, where there are no terrorists but families, children, and sick people with disabilities, nuns. Some say it's terrorism, it's war. Yes, it is war, it is terrorism. It's highly unusual for the Pope to make such an explicit statement, just straightforwardly accusing Israel of acts of terrorism. But the Pope wasn't the only religious leader to condemn Israel's targeting of civilians sheltering in a church. Cardinal of Westminster, Vincent Nichols, has appeared on Sky News, where he was asked about the attack on the church. What explanation could there be? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about the management of soldiers in uniform and the discipline that they should be exercising, but we've seen in a number of ways that discipline has broken down. We have to say goodbye to WBAI, and we're going to continue to the top of the hour on PRN.Live. These would appear to be just random shootings, so I hope those responsible for it, because this is a structured army, uh, will be held uh, to account for what they've done. You wouldn't go as far 
as what how the Pope has described the situation, incredibly strong language um, from the Holy Father saying that it was um, a terrorist attack. Well, I'm not sure of the technicalities, frankly. Uh, this is a, the army of a state. So I, I would prefer to say it was a cold-blooded killing. And I, what is so terrible is this just one example of what seem, would seem to be many, but one example that touches me deeply and one example from which we have some very objective evidence. A cold-blooded killing by the Israeli state. Again, very strong words from a church leader. So what did Israel have to say about that condemnation? On Sky News, Benjamin Netanyahu's senior advisor, Mark Regev, said this. I would reject the, the categorization of, uh, of the words he used, cold-blooded killing. That would indicate a deliberate targeting of civilians. That's something we don't do. We don't shoot people who are going to church to pray. It just doesn't happen. Uh, that's not the way the IDF operates. That's against our rules of engagement. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened, and I would urge people not to jump to conclusions. There have been in the past all sorts of stories put out by Hamas and their supporters accusing Israel of all sorts of terrible deeds, and in the end, they've proved to be wrong. And uh, uh, we're talking about a combat area. There's exchanges of fire between Israeli forces and uh, the Hamas terrorists. To say that Israel is deliberately targeting Christian worshippers, that's, that's a terrible accusation that is unfounded. Would you acknowledge, Mr Egev, that the bullets that killed these women were fired by the IDF? I do not know that to be true. Obviously, we're looking into it. Uh, uh, could they have been killed uh, by, by Palestinian terrorists who were shooting at our people indiscriminately? I don't know. Uh, but we've got to be very careful. Uh, there have been countless stories this, since this conflict began where reports out of Gaza, people are 100% sure that Israel did something terrible or this, that or the other. And in the end, it's been proven conclusively that that was not the case. God, they just lie through their teeth, don't they? This idea that the IDF doesn't attack people in religious buildings or around religious buildings. We've seen what happens at the Alaska Mosque. We've seen what's happening at the churches. And we're also struggling to remember examples of reports of Israeli atrocities that were proven not to be the case. Though we could come up with plenty of Israeli claims that turned out to be pretty doubtful. Now, the siege of the church continues across Christmas, with the situation apparently deteriorating quickly. This morning, Leila Moran gave LBC a further update on the situation. The escalation in the last week uh, has been the worst we've seen. Um, on Tuesday, they, um, and these are the reports we're getting from, from inside the church, they, there was firing, they reported uh, the use of white phosphorus. Um, there was a sniper that killed two women, and this is what the Pope was referring to. Um, they are living in... Sunday school rooms. So the complex itself is the church, but then yes. uh, several rooms around a courtyard. And the circumstances of the women dying was they, they were trying to get to the toilet. One was a grandma, one was a mum, middle-aged, and, and they were simply trying to go to the toilet and, and they were um, targeted by the sniper. Um, the latest is the last generator's now gone, that was blown up. Uh, that was the one that pumped the water and filtered the water from the well. So there is no water nor food, and um, there are more snipers now that are pointing their guns towards the church and the building opposite. So, I mean, we are, we are terrified. They are, of course, 
terrified. We're getting snatched conversations with them. Um, but that because there's no electricity now, we are, you know, it's 30 seconds, are you still alive kind of conversation. We just don't understand what the IDF are doing. Yesterday, they called the father and said, um, we're going to give you two hours where we're not going to shoot at you. Um, which allowed them to be able to go from room to room and check who's got water. They're down to almost nothing. But what that says, just turn that on its head for a moment. If they're going to give them two hours where we're not going to shoot at civilians, that does rather seem to admit that they are shooting at civilians and, and hence our, our deep concern for what's happening there. I'm, I'm just not sure they're going to survive the week. Our plea to the Israeli government is just leave them alone. You know, they haven't hurt anybody. And we're out of time, everyone. I want to thank you all for sharing. And by the way, I will be doing a program on Monday, on New Year's Day, to reflect some of the importance of bringing all the pieces together. Who's behind our problems? What is their motive? What can we do to change the outcome? Otherwise, I see a very dystopian future coming at us really fast, not in 20 years, but in the next 12 months. Have a nice day, everyone.